0: Hello everyone, I'm John Engel.
1: And I'm Mitch Bryan.
0: And welcome to Outpost 31, Alien Minutes Autopsy of John Carpenter's The Thing. Mayday. Mayday.
2: Can anyone hear me? Oh. This is US Station 31. Can you read me? We found something in the ice. We need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? We found something. We found something.
0: We found something.
2: Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live inside where no one can see it or hear it or feel it I know I'm human some of you are still human this thing doesn't want to show itself it wants to hide inside an imitation it'll fight if it has to but it's vulnerable out in the open if it takes us over then it has no more enemies nobody left to kill it and then it's won
0: alright well welcome back Mitch uh good to be here yeah. we've got a
1: guest today i want to introduce my friend cody wyoming band leader musician director of plays and a just general all-around super fan thing fan artist super fan thing <laughs> all <laughs> super like thing the fan thing?
2: yes hey great
1: to be here very happy to be here so i guess we should um start by asking you about your relationship with the thing
2: sure um i um I can remember that I didn't get to see this movie when it came out um because my parents refused to let me go see it. I think it was probably my uncle's fault who came to our house after having seen it and told my folks about how scary it was, about how absolutely positively terrifying it was the scariest thing that he'd ever seen <laughs> really and so yeah um and so they they said no that I couldn't see it and uh I see the rest of that summer. Plus, you know, I did get E. T. Blade Runner. Did you get Poltergeist? I uh, no, I didn't get to see Poltergeist yeah. um, either. So I think so. I was like eleven when that came out, and uh, it was right before they let me just run wild at the cinema. But um, could you get into R-rated movies at age eleven? At no your cinema. No, huh? They wouldn't let no, you. No, absolutely in, right? not. No, I, I can remember. I can remember when I was in junior high. Asking seniors to buy me tickets to Nightmare on Elm Street. So, <laughs> it was a, even as old as fourteen or fifteen, they were still they were still pretty strict at my movie theater. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I saw this movie. I wanted to see it for a long time, and I can remember seeing it in copies of Fangoria and um, and when I finally got to see it on HBO, just absolutely being blown away by it. John, when did you first see the thing? High school.
0: Probably rented it from the. I've, I've talked about the. Grocery store, video store.
1: So you saw a beautiful pan and scan VHS, VHS no doubt, mm, and probably yum.
0: didn't. You know what? There's a good chance I never saw it in its proper aspect ratio until either you showed it for a class or we watched it after hours at the Tivoli. Um, that might have been. That was really the first time I became a big fan of the movie too. Uh, was that time that we saw it over at the Tivoli? Then we went. To McCoy's for drinks after. I mean, we've I've told the story like this many times on this podcast. <laughs> They're all the Watching same story. Watch it at the Tivoli, Go to <laughs> go for drinks at McCoy's. Talk about the movie. It was good times. Uh,
2: Did you know Cody at the time about John Carpenter? Were you already I, a fan of his? I I had become, a, and this was this is probably um, one of the earliest movies that I'd seen where I had gotten to know and was aware of who he was, and I knew. I guess there were a couple of things that that tied it in. I I I had watched Halloween on HBO and later that year they re-released assault on precinct 13 at hbo on hbo and uh that one kind of knocked me out and then i think i saw escape from New York. like all of them came to me through hbo um i think i saw escape from new york and by that time you know i thought i would i'd always like kurt russell from the disney movies and stuff so i kind of grew up with kurt russell and was a big fan and uh i loved snake pliskin you know i thought that he was really just cool and i pretended to be him on the playground and and uh <laughs> did you
1: have an eye patch <laughs> yeah i did yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: i'd make i'd make one out of what was hanging around and and uh and i <laughs> cody why do you have that underwear across your face <laughs> <laughs> um but uh yeah and so uh, when i knew this movie i was i was when I finally did see this movie, I was probably 13 or 14 or whatever. And then, yeah, I was, at that time, was had become a fan of John Carpenter. So, was. let
1: me ask you, because I remember when I saw it, and I saw it in the theater, and I was really impressed with it and dazzled by it, and I just thought it was just the most amazing movie. But I can't rem- remember being scared by it, you know? I mean, there's shocking moments. It's a film built with these amazing, almost... You know, truly aw- awesome, awe inspiring visual things. But I can't remember it ever really scaring me the way that Halloween scared me. I mean, I didn't go check the backseat of my car like <laughs> I did after I saw Halloween. Did, did it scare either one of you guys?
0: No, uh, I wouldn't call it scary. I mean, you can, there's the palpable paranoia, the tension is there. The, there's It's suspenseful, it's gross. But I don't remember
2: ever. Right, there's nothing relatable no, so. in that sense. It didn't scare me, but and, and uh, that's hard for me to quantify because only three or four movies in my entire life have ever actually scared me. Halloween being one of them. Um, so I don't just I don't get scared by movies. I can I can recognize that a movie is scary, even though it didn't scare me, and I can appreciate its scariness. But no, very rarely am I ever. Scared by a movie. Cody, can,
0: can we get the other two movies that scared you?
2: Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, d- the Babadook. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh nice. Uh, the the oh, scared as a grown you're man. Scared of having children now. definitely. There was there's something about that movie that just it just absolutely terrified me, and I think that it was about um, they made that woman's uh, struggle her her struggle so palpable and just. You know, a quarter of the way movie th- through it, I was just exhausted from her that the movie had me so worn out that it just scared me. You know, my emotions were raw and open. It just kind of tore me apart. And um, and then, and I also thought that movie was brilliant, but that's neither here nor there. And then, oh God, what else What else actually scared me? I, I'd i have to think about that. Maybe Okay, maybe well, just chime in something. if something hits yeah. you. Over the, just scream out a
1: film title at any time during this, and <laughs> we'll know that that's what we're talking about. Well, I think that the thing about the thing that is noteworthy because of that is that it seems to me that it's typical of an 80s movie in that it's it's a genre hybrid and so it mixes science fiction with I think paranoid suspense thriller genre with you know gory horror stuff uh with science fiction, right? Did I did I forget I th- I one? Think is there adventure another film? Oh, did I say I didn't say adventure film? Yes, yeah, and, it, and it's an adventure film. Yeah, it's definitely first and
2: foremost in a way. Has the uh, the sort of men on a mission, even though they're not yeah. they're they're not strictly speaking going somewhere on a mission, but there's the ensemble of disparate characters who are thrown together to achieve a goal. You know that kind of that kind of uh, dirty dozen sort of um, yeah. type of vibe is happening. It's,
0: it's like a nerdy dozen. It's like uh, most of these guys. <laughs> there's really only one. Alpha male adventurer in the group,
1: right? And he has to step up. Or maybe up. two, and, child's and, and him. And and they, yeah. they kind of have and to step up to the job. They're not when we meet them, they're not wanting to be alpha male adventure leaders. Right. Which I think is another thing that's so interesting about the
0: Well movie. And, it, and it helps create naturally organically create the character dynamics that we see develop through the movie. Like deferment too. Like once the adventure movie kicks in, once the danger, tension, Kicks in, deferment to those who they think might be able to handle it better. Is is apparent
1: when you look at the first scene of the movie. It's great because it announces itself as a science fiction movie. As a, I mean, it starts in outer space, mm-hmm. right? And so that, and I think the movie does through the first act give us a little taste of each one of the different, you know, major notes that it's going to play all through it. So it starts with that shot of the spaceship, you
2: know, coming through outer space. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention is before we get to that first shot um, that happens One thing that I think is kind of interesting about this movie And I wonder if maybe we just talk about it sort of briefly is that um, This is this is Carpenter's first studio picture, right? Yeah, this is the first thing that he did with a studio with studio money and Everything else he'd done before that was independently financed Um, So this is a this is a universal picture and it's also a universal horror picture And there's no universal um, logo at the at the start of this movie is is I wonder if that is that is that some kind of John Carpenter rebelling against the studio because I, I it it's it's a strange thing to me because the Universal Globe. Logo at the beginning of every movie is such an iconic thing to happen. And this movie doesn't start with that. It starts, it just says a universal picture, a title card that says a universal picture. Right. And and there's no globe, there's no, you know, none of well, that stuff. And I just, anybody have any thoughts on And there's on no that?
1: credit to RKO either, is there? Which no. is kind of interesting mm-hmm. because no. it was an RKO movie, right? It was Winchester Pictures, the original version of the thing. With yes. Winchester Pictures, which was Hawks' company, uh, and then RKO. And it's interesting because the same summer Universal was remaking Cat People, which does say RKO Pictures, right. I think, at the beginning right. of it.
0: Uh, which these two, these two movies are, those two movies are connected. To the Cat People in this in another way. I mean, we might as well put it out there. This movie was a big flop. It, it bombed at the box office, and uh, part of the reason, at least we can speculate, was the release date was not right for it. I mean, it was sandwiched between, I believe, E.T. and Poltergeist, correct? Like, right in between. But um, Cat People was supposed to be in this slot. And oh. they had all these problems with the production. Oh,
1: that's just such a heartbreaker. Cat People screwed it up for
0: the yeah. thing. And then when it came out, nobody cared. Other than, other than having an okay soundtrack. Cat People came out, like, in Halloween, right? I'm guessing. Fall? Which is when this should have come out. Yeah, definitely. Right, absolutely. And this movie would have been a hit in October.
1: I think so, too.
2: I like the Cat mm-hmm. People remake quite a bit. I think it's, it's, it's a peculiar film.
1: The first half's great.
2: Second half's... Agreed. Problematic. Agreed. At best. Agreed. And and, and it's kind of interesting to note, um, when, as long as we're talking about the two movies, is about where they took the source material from and where they took it to, about how um, the, the original, the thing from another world is... Oh, and you know what? That's uh, I'm just going to... Uh, while we're saying this right now This is one of the reasons Why I was so attracted to this movie Is because I'd also never seen The original Thing from Another World But I'd always wanted to Because they show it on the TV In Halloween Right, And I'd always oh, you'd never seen no, it No I'd never oh, seen it before And so I And I knew When this movie came out I knew that it was a remake Of The Thing from Another World And I knew that That's what the kids were watching In Halloween And so I'd always wanted to see The original and never got to So I saw this before I saw The the original as well um, But uh, But yeah The, the that this movie is the thing and the thing from another world both come from the same place but are very very different very different movies they play with different themes they they have different things to say they have different viewpoints on pretty much everything and i think that uh that cat people apart from you know having psychosexual themes as well as the original they're two very different movies with two very different viewpoints and very different things to say about about everything so just and a noteworthy observation. Yeah, no, I
1: think it's true. I, I I think that this was the 1980s. That's another thing that's that's noteworthy. They were looking to remake everything that they possibly could get their hands on. It without was, just
2: doing a shot-for-shot shot remake of the... Th- without a rehash, though, which is what I liked about right, these But They two. were
1: definitely moving into that corporate phase where the thought was, if we can find
2: a pre-existing property we own these properties let's get him back out on the street and make some money for which, us which
1: they've been doing forever i mean the maltese falcon was the third version the one that we think of is the the maltese falcon that film had already been made twice yeah right his
0: girl friday was the front page that yeah. already been made a couple mm-hmm. times right uh ben-hur ben things Hur, things like that, the wizard yeah. of oz yeah um i did want to really quickly because we never actually answered the question i don't actually have mm-hmm. an answer to the question cody posed about the universal logo but I would say that um, John Carpenter in the commentary does say that it's an odd thing, too. Oh, He really? actually makes the same <laughs> remark he did. So he doesn't know either. It wasn't John huh. Carpenter making the choice. In the commentary, the, like, pretty much the very first thing he says is, it's a universal picture, there's no universal logo. That's kind of a strange thing.
1: Do you think they thought that since you're going to see a planet later, <laughs> the Earth from space well, later, a, they didn't want to do it twice?
0: I mean, now you would get the universal logo and then-
2: the the text would all go away and the spaceship it,
0: would like fly that's, into that's it, exactly you know, right that's yeah exactly what would happen now it's the the reason yeah. why
2: it struck me as being interesting and and that I'm kind of glad that to know that John Carpenter says as is that Carpenter being such a fan of 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 film and old Hollywood and you know it if he's making a studio picture you would have thought he would want that studio picture logo because you know it's old Hollywood kind of stuff and he likes that sort of thing so just I don't know it's just an interesting thing to me I wonder whose call that was and why. I always like how different directors choose different versions of the Universal logo. I would have put the RKO one if it was me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) uh, yeah, absolutely, would have done that. And then have the UFO crash into the tower.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do get a direct tip of the hat though to the thing in that first sequence. I mean, so you know, it starts in outer space, and so Carpenter's using his studio money to give us a really shit-hot flying saucer. That's a
2: great spaceship. It it really is a great spaceship.
0: That is an entirely from scratch uh, model, too. Apparently, I forgetting I'm forgetting the name of the model maker now. But she, the lights is light up very on the much against kit bashing. So there's no kit bashing at all. Like where we, almost any other movie of this era, the models are made out of models. So it's completely sculpted. It's completely sculpted. She she fabricated
1: it all from scratch. I'm sure Eric Moore will weigh in on the Facebook page hey. with more details, <laughs> and we are waiting for that. So hit us <laughs> with your best shot, Eric. Um, so. Then there is this direct tip of the hat to the thing because we get the we get the words, the thing burning in just like in the original, except, of course, it's in color. Um, So that does say to the audience that we're definitely. You know, in the same reality and you see that. In Halloween as well. That's
0: one of the things you see on the TV in Halloween is the title come through as mm-hmm. well. Correct? Yes. So you're. It's almost like Carpenter's like, oh yeah, no, it's me too. You remember you saw that for a moment in the because I imagine a lot of people hadn't seen the original movie uh, at this time, so yeah. maybe that's that would be like oh familiar from Halloween. Yeah, as well. you know,
1: I grew up because I'm just a little older than you guys. Just with a little. Yeah. Th- yeah, just a little. I, I swear the thing was on TV all the time after school. And on weekends, at, when they had movies, I don't know how many. It times just must I have been that that,
2: that difference a couple of years makes. Because yeah. uh, if it had been on, I would have watched it over and over and over again.
1: It was part of that RKO package that so many local stations mm-hmm. bought, and yeah. so like Gunga Den, it showed up a lot. Um, but I think what's so cool is then you go from that very fantasy kind of shot to an absolutely realistic shot, handheld even of these glaciers, and so the movie changes gears almost instantly into I think what you could say is a, a you know a realistic
2: adventure movie absolutely that uh, you know the helicopter coming over the glacier in British Columbia with I mean the in our Antarctica that it's British Columbia plays Antarctica but uh you know nothing like a helicopter coming over a mountain to say adventure you know
1: and carpenter was piloting helicopters at this point right so he, he was, was
2: totally interested
1: in it so that's why you get these air-to-air shots I think that's why you've got shots out on the skid uh, I, I, clearly this is made by somebody who's quite enamored with with the technology of the helicopter
0: not not to quibble too much but this is what got him to start flying helicopters like all this shooting around the helicopters and the and the pilot in particular I think kind of got
2: him motivated to start so he said
1: and did Kurt Russell learn to fly as well
2: he, there is a scene where you can you can watch and maybe I'll point it out where Kurt Russell takes the helicopter off from the landing so. pad and it's a it's a little sketchy looking.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. It's I, I watched it a couple times, going, hmm, how is it? Because <laughs> you could see the the character in the foreground, which uh, which would be c- c- Copper, I guess, but it's he's kind of shrouded and it made me think that the pilot was just kind of like huddled over the <laughs> over the <laughs> stick, trying to pretend like he wasn't
1: flying. <laughs> so I have a question for you. Do you think that the dog? When it turns around and looks back at the helicopter, is slowing down so that the helicopter doesn't lose it? I don't know what you mean. The dog is pre- yeah. The dog the is totally yeah. The dog to- the dog is totally. I thought the dog was totally leading the helicopter.
0: Oh, you mean okay? Te-
1: within the text of the film, With, yeah, not, yeah, within the text dog. of the film, like the thing, <laughs> yeah. the thing, the it's dog, a good dog. The actor, dog thing but... is running really great, and then the dog thing says, "Wait a minute, I need to turn around and make sure this guy hadn't lost me." Okay. Because
2: I, th- I think that's the only, if if you're going to make sense of it, I think that's the only thing that does make sense because, you know, that's it, the dog could get lost. There's crev- crevices and rocks and things that he could hide behind, and, and he's instead choosing to run in the open, uh, a black dog on white snow.
0: Yeah, I thought your question was going to be, did you think this dog should have won Best Supporting Actor <laughs> in 1982? Yes. like an amazing performance for a dog.
1: It really is. But I think we're definitely in an adventure movie and even yeah. that shot looking down from the helicopter at him chasing the dog reminds you of, of footage you've seen of them hunting wolves from helicopters mm-hmm. so there's something that's very real and, and sort of grounding about this
0: i do think that the moment where the dog pauses is important though because we're getting a nice shot of it as a dog it's not some wild animal it's not a coyote or a wolf whatever that you might be hunting you see right away that right. it's actually a domesticated dog which then, so we're getting kind of a mixed uh, signal here. You're you're right. This is like traditional adventure movie, but this guy's shooting at a dog, <laughs> which yeah. is a totally different kind of message than you would usually get at the beginning of an adventure movie. And, and I think and, and uh, certain
2: and certainly, uh, uh, right off the bat, leaves you in a state of bewilderment and like, what on earth? Why? What's going on? Where are we? What's happening? Why are they shooting at a dog? Why are guys in a helicopter chasing a dog? And it just leaves you kind of with no footing. As you step into this movie, you already have no footing because there's an adventure story happening and you've got no uh, context for the action that's happening whatsoever. Which I think
1: is one of the things that makes the movie so extraordinary. I don't know that John Carpenter was ever better in terms of how he moves us from character to character, establishes connections with characters, moves us close to their points of view, and yet maintains this kind of You know, godlike distance, and in fact, it—the camera movement doesn't become visible for a while. Initially, the camera is just this really passive observer, and and there's a particular moment which we'll get to where the camera says, "Aha, I'm, I'm, I'm here," and I'm, I'm moving around and looking. But right now, nothing.
0: Which is very Hawksian of him, right? Yeah, you're right. It kind of starts like a Howard Hawks movie. That's
1: exactly right, John. Yeah, makes total sense. So you get those establishing shots of the. Of the base and you know various shots of the men just doing their their daily thing
2: which I, I think is is so brilliant just you know showing the guys playing ping pong and you know just hanging out going about their day doing things that you do at you know when you're not working at work <laughs> yeah all of which are kind of distant
1: shots observational and then you get your hero's introduction with a pretty bold dramatic close-up which is You know, McCready reaching for the ice, a hand reaching for the ice, the ice going into a glass, and then you finally get this gigantic close-up of McCready that sort of says, this guy's important. Plus, it's our movie star, right? Yeah. And then this idea of computer chess.
2: He has an entire computer that is just devoted to chess. It's the called chess, chess Wizard. Chess Wizard. <laughs> 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 the, the entire gigantic thing just plays chess. So
1: it's a little homage to 2001 maybe, I don't know, playing well, chess with HAL.
0: I think we're getting some character here because it could be, you know, we know Kurt Russell and everything, but it could be easy to assume that this guy's a meathead pilot. We we at least right away See that he's he's a little bit brainy. He's a little bit strategic. We don't know he's a pilot yet. We just we don't know
1: that yet. But he's a drink, hard drinking chess player at this point. He drinks the first scotch thing we and learned. not
2: Budweiser. You know. Yeah. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. And his cynical conversation with
2: with the computer. Adrian Barbeau, the only female in the movie, is Adrian Barbeau's voice. Yeah, I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah, you, you didn't know it was. Like, no, I didn't oh, know that. Yeah. The fact that this is the lone female representation
1: of the movie. <laughs> it's yes. been noted. Shall we talk about that. Yeah. yeah. And what does he do? <laughs> he, yeah. he destroys her. He destroys her, right. Calls yeah. her a name. Cheating too. bitch. So she's a cheating bitch.
0: So she oh, won gee. Fair and Square, by the way. Absolutely. This isn't one of those how like mistakes. <laughs> she did
1: she didn't cheat, right? She won. No, and she he's won. he's mad about that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So as we move back out to rejoin the pursuit of the dog. And that's also just in terms of the storytelling, you know, it's taking us back to where it started and it's now going to bring these two threads back together. Uh, I think that that's, it's the, the film does this again and again. It, it, it sort of sends out a lure and kind of hooks you and starts to pull you in and then it moves you to another place and then it brings you back again. Uh, and I I don't know, this is the complexity of the storytelling. Given that we recently talked about alien three, uh, it's interesting to look at these movies in terms of each other and, and why one works better than another. I,
2: I'd, I'd like to say just real quick, it's just really, uh, really marvelous. We're going to talk about the dog acting maybe some more, but that helicopter's chasing that dog, and that dog is running from the helicopter. There's not intercutting that footage that's not mm-hmm. f- movie-making tricks. They're chasing a dog with a helicopter, and the dog is running from it and doing a
0: great job. The dog does get scared by the helicopter yeah, for at one point, too. You can tell it's,
1: it's, it's real. Uh, It's pretty committed to giving us, to letting us see everything Mm -hmm. all through the movie. You know, it's like, we're going to show you everything, monsters and all. Uh, And so that shot of Kurt Russell coming out of the shack um, to see this stuff going down just, again, locates us
2: within that space. Man, those glacier glasses were everywhere that year, too. Everybody had those glacier glasses at school.
1: Uh, so then we start to meet our cast members, right? So we get these four guys who we'll come to know as, as Bennings, Norris, uh, Palmer, and Childs, right? Did I get that right? Yeah. Yes. yes, you did. Yay. I can see if I can do this. Yes, I think Benings. it's Bennings. Yes, yeah. Bennings. Yes, you did. Also called George.
0: So here we get a camera move. We have yeah, the first big,
1: bold camera move is, is into Gary, who's watching at the window. And then the the next camera move is just following the action. So that's the first camera move that really leads the action. That's that's John Carpenter's camera, you know, saying, ha-ha, I'm going to make you look at this more closely. But the altercation then that happens with these guys, it's so great because the dog runs up to Bennings and just, you know, starts licking him and being his friend and everything, right? Yep. Uh, And then we've got some really ham-fisted grenade tossing (laughs) by this poor guy (laughs) who (laughs) tries to throw it, but it falls out of his hand, and then the next thing you know it conveniently blows up the helicopter. Again, we're in an adventure movie. I don't think we're in a horror movie yet. Not at all. But then we get, coming up soon, the first indication that this is more than just an adventure movie, that there might be something that's a little bit more body conscious about that. Because when, not only does Bennings get shot in the leg, but when Gary decides to shoot this guy, he hits him right in the head. In the eye. In the eye with the bullet. and And we're treated to that in addition to a really grotesque sort of bodily twitch when the guy falls dead. There's something that's just very unspectacular on one hand about the way this guy goes down, how just dead and limp,
2: and then this weird twitch. It's also a really, uh, shooting of it there is very kind of hoxy and it's very quick, you know. Yeah, right. Take, takes a shot, he falls, it's over, it's done. The whole gunfight is done and fast, very Howard Hox kind of. I think one of,
0: one of the other elements of this scene that brings us into the... Perhaps into the horror movie is how this guy is so desperate to kill the dog. Now we've seen him shooting at the dog. Okay, he wants to shoot a dog, but now he's face to face with other human, be- other human beings that he could talk to or explain it to. I mean, he can't speak English, but he kind of doesn't care. He's just going to shoot, and so so desperate that he shot a guy. He'd shoot all shoot those guys dog. if he had to, right? Yeah, well, he's to just get that dog. Killing that dog is super important, and you got to ask why, and it kind of could only be for
1: horrific reasons, right? <laughs> We also get the introduction to Richard Mazur's character. Clark. Uh, And he comes up to the dog, and why? Because he's the dog guy. Well, he's the dog petter. I mean, that's the thing, this movie that works really hard to start establishing what each one of these guys, what their function is within the group. Right. So that we've finally got a sense of who does what. And um, Kurt Russell's line at the end of this, first goddamn week of winter, is the line that kind of caps the whole sequence and moves us now into the second sequence of the film. So if you're keeping score, basically the first sequence of the thing starts with the outer space uh, shot and the ship and ends with Kurt Russell's character saying, first goddamn week of winter. And you can feel the energy just shift. Mm
0: -hmm. We Cut right into a pretty gory shot of a guy getting sutured. He's pretty he's he's pretty tough about it, I got to say. I don't think I'd be
1: looking at that and just wincing a little bit. But. And and so we've got the guy that's stitching him up. So guess what that guy's job is probably? He's the stitcher. Right, he's the stitcher. <laughs> he's the dog petter and the stitcher. And then we go to another guy named Windows and what's Windows doing? He's on the radio. And so Carpenter is working very and Bill Lancaster who wrote the screenplay is working very carefully to help us figure out what each one of these guys does. Ways to differentiate these characters. I think casting is extraordinary, too, because everybody has a very distinctive look.
2: I I was listening to your your Alien 3 um, sort of... uh, uh, Tribute. Tribute, we like to call it. (laughs) And one of the difficulties of that movie is that there's no distinction. All those guys just looked alike, and when you've got an ensemble cast, every single one of these guys is so completely different from one another. I'll tell you, in Alien 3, you got nobody roller skating through the place.
1: (laughs) Well, you know,
0: I don't know if you guys have you guys ever checked out a draft of the script where it has a character page right before the text begins, and they say it says things like, uh, he's the cook, he's bright, roller skates. It just says
2: things like that. You know, you get nice little efficient. Characteristics. There's a TV version where it starts with that, where it starts with an, a voiceover that tells you that shows a picture of all the characters and it tells you what they do. <laughs> does over, it say, oh Palmer, <laughs> doesn't say Palmer Stoner. Doesn't say that, does it? Clark. He takes care of the dogs. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah. So even if you don't know all of their names, they're all visually distinct enough from each other. Uh, it took me forever to remember what Fuchs's name was, and I don't think they say it until pretty deep into the into the second or maybe third sequence. But you don't have to know their names because they all, they all look different. They're not all a bunch of bald English guys. Sorry, Alien 3.
0: By, by the time I saw this movie, all of these guys were recognizable to me from t- television, too. <laughs> that was kind of crazy. So I never had that. I mean, I never had that, have the benefit of them being distinctive because they were distinctive to me as, oh, that's the guy from 30-something, and that's the guy from Hunter, and that's the guy from L.A. Law. It pretty much launched everybody's careers, yeah, right? Because Because
1: I, I don't think I recognized any of those guys other than Kurt Russell when I saw the movie upon its initial release. So these guys all kind of went on to have... Maybe Dysart I'd seen somewhere, but I don't know. I don't think so.
2: In that first scene there, too, where they're all talking to each other and they're all kind of in the same room and they're making the decision to go check out the Norwegian base, and and Palmer says that he'll go as he's firing up the joint and says, <laughs> "Sit down, no, thanks for thinking about it, though." You know, <laughs> but uh, that's that's that's, it, I'll talk about this a little bit. You know, every time it comes up, but that's some of that great economy of character building. He he doesn't he doesn't tell you. He shows you who these guys are, and he does it quickly and swiftly and you just get an idea of what everybody's personalities are and how those personalities work with the other personalities and whether they you know whether they mesh or whether they grate uh, against each other that you know you're you're already starting to see that happen and I, th- I think maybe a lot of that was done through the casting of the movie but also you know he took these guys up to Stuart British Columbia and then put them on this set <laughs> and they kind of were functioning as a team of professionals in an isolated area so you know building that kind of rapport with each other was probably pretty important into getting this but it's just really well done and I and I, I really like that scene and, a, and another one that's coming up you what know, do you think we're supposed
1: bit... to infer from the fact that Palmer's just sitting there around everybody else firing up a joint is it Saturday or is this just a, a <laughs> typical day in the life of these guys and Palmer's just stoned all the time I
2: kind of I kind of get the feeling that Palmer's just stoned all the time (laughs) yeah Yeah. they seem to have two helicopter pilots and And only one does any (laughs) flying. and only one does only one seems to need to yeah yeah um that's pretty interesting
1: I think that we do get um the fact that McCready's you know he's willing to fly but he's not crazy about it
2: right I, I love the shot where he where they tell him that we're going and he looks up at the sky and you know well this is a bad idea but I'm capable. I guess I will because I can. And he's a professional. He's a professional. We're back to the world of Howard Hawks. Right. These guys are all
1: professionals,
2: except maybe Palmer. Except for maybe Palmer. Mac, it may not clear up for a week. Yeah. And we're the closest ones to him. It's all right by me, Doc. I'm just letting you know we're we're taking a chance. Quit the griping, McCready. If those clouds keep moving over the sun, we're going to get a whiteout. We get caught in that and you can scratch one doctor and one pilot. This is real thin and clear as
1: soon as you get up.
2: It's up to you, Mac.
1: If you don't want to fly, we don't fly.
2: You really want to save those crazy Swedes, huh? Norwegians. Which way, Doc? Southwest. You're going to have to read the map because I'm going to be busy.
0: Gary here gives McCready a little bit of a hard time, so you get kind of the typical dynamic. The long-haired beardy with the weird hat gets griped at by the boss. But then Dysart's very, very respectful of McCready. He's like, hey, you don't want to go up? We won't go up. And he's like, oh, we can go up. It's, it feels like a real professional relationship between the two of them, so you get a little bit of you know, sub- subversion of your ideas of, of authority figures against the... the you know wh- uh, how to describe McCready exactly, but then you also get a real professional relationship.
1: These kind of negotiations probably go all, on all the time with these guys as yeah. they each stake out their positions and they and they have to come to to you know a final a final decision on whether to go up or not.
2: I also kind of have a theory about that. I've kind of made up a backstory about McCready and some of these other guys, and that and that and I think that McCready was a Vietnam uh, chopper pilot, absolutely, and, and that he came back to the states and got burnt out, and probably there were some drug problems and just you know he was spiraling out of control and so he went he took this job flying in Antarctica so that he could just get away from everything that that was you know his PTSD was giving him he just needed to get away and I think that the doctor has a has a sympathy and a respect for him and and kind of understands what he is and is a little bit more tolerant of him whereas Gary simply is an authority figure and probably either law enforcement or an ex-military man as well. Right. He's used to giving orders, and he knows that Mac is a burned-out military man who's not into taking orders and not into that sort of... So there may be a little bit of an abrasive relationship between the two, but between Mac and the doctor is a little bit more sympathetic.
1: That does make for an interesting backstory idea that if he was in Vietnam, he's put himself up in a place that is as visually different from Vietnam and physically different than vietnam than any place you could imagine Mm
0: -hmm. i mean i think simply if it's the early 80s and there's a helicopter pilot that's a vietnam vet i mean tc Stringfellow hawk whoever you want to come up with at the time i mean i i never thought otherwise honestly because it just seemed like that's always the case
1: i think that the there's a joke about swedes versus norwegians that it doesn't add up to anything but again it's one more way that just creates texture and character to this yeah i remember when i saw the um was it the sequel? Did they call it a sequel to The Thing? Prequel. The, the prequel? Yeah. I remember watching it thinking, did these guys I- even watch The Thing? Like, <laughs> did, did they have any concept of what the charm was about The Thing, and it had to do with character, and it had to do with idiosyncrasies, and it had to do with humor, and it had to do with professionalism, and it had to do with lives that had been lived None of that. You is feel
2: like it's going to be that way in the first scene, and then it, one scene, one the scene, first
1: scene, where they tell a dirty joke,
2: right? Uh huh. That gets thinking, interrupted. Yeah. At the very end of it, and then and then you think, oh, this is going to be that kind of, and then it isn't. It isn't. I've never, never, never seen it. Oh, you haven't. I oh, you haven't.
0: really can't bring myself. Well, I kept thinking <laughs> I, I should maybe
2: before we record this. I don't know why, but I didn't. No, I don't. Blame Every you. time I think I'm going to, I don't. Mac just keeps uh, says several times, "Hey, Sweden." Uh, those crazy Swedes and stuff like that. They're Norwegian, Mac.
1: I think it's interesting, too, as he's firing up the helicopter, that we cut back inside to the guys. Then they're watching out the window as he's taking off. It's Carpenter reminding us that this is going to be a multi-point-of-view story, that, that it will move from a, the primary objective to, to show us what the other people are doing. And, and he does it so effortlessly and beautifully because it, you know, it, it ends up on a shot of the dog underneath the table.
2: Which is so perfect that, to let you know that, that it really clues you in that something's up with the dog. It doesn't it was, tell you what, but it says... The dog's not the, right, The man. dog's
1: not right, yeah. And this movie's not about going and saving the Norwegians. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's about something else.
0: I think it's nice to have the the Palmer line about, you know, McCready knows what he's doing. Well, well, well we could probably... Suss that out ourselves watching the movie. It's nice to get that established right away. This guy is going to be the competent guy that people are going to defer to later in the movie. And, you know, maybe Palmer's not the most uh, reliable source for for information, but he is the other pilot, I guess, so he knows what he's talking about. I think
1: it's so great because you get that beautiful takeoff of the helicopter flying away, you know, so that thread is headed out, and then you go back to the dog Mm -hmm. and this establishing shot of the place as night begins to fall, and then music comes up. And we're still in the same sequence, but that song, Superstition, is a pretty good choice. I mm-hmm. think. It's fun, and he, and Nalls is still on his roller skates, and Bennings wants him to turn the music down, and you know this is life back at the camp. And that seems normal, and then you start getting these shots where the camera starts moving independently, and there's no people in the scene. And that, for me, is when I go, oh yeah, this is a John Carpenter movie. Yep. That camera begins prowling around the space. Is it the consciousness of the thing that the camera represents? Is it just the hand of the storyteller? Just moving us from one room to the next as the music plays and saying, uh, sit back and relax, you guys, because I'm I'm in charge here and, and I'm going to take you where I want to take you. And we pick that dog back up.
0: And maybe the best performance in the history of dogs. Without question. There's something about the way he walks down this corridor uh, it's creepy and after you get that like kind of foreboding camera like you're describing the camera move It's a
2: little foreboding. You're like, what are we seeing? Why are we seeing this? It's about how he, he he's he starts off at a he comes to a stop and then he walks and goes into the first room and then Sees that there's nothing in the first room comes back out And then goes to the room where we see that there's a purse a shadow of silhouette of a person but the whole time that camera is moving and the dog doesn't ever look at the camera. That's amazing. It, it's amazing. It's, it's really fantastic because that camera is moving. It's, it's got to be on a dolly or on, yeah. on a track. Yeah, there's and, a whole bunch of guys
1: pulling and, the camera. And, and there's a
2: whole bunch, of, there's a whole yeah. crew there and that dog ignores it and just goes right through the thing on his own agenda. And it, it's really outstanding.
1: And I'm pretty sure that's a dolly shot. It's not a steady cam shot because that camera's really locked down. So now my question is the dog goes into the room and we see the silhouette of a guy sitting in there. And when you're watching the movie, you don't know anybody long enough to be able to really make much of a guess as to who this guy is. You're, that's one of the beautiful right. tricks that this movie pulls on you. It's like it, it, it hits you with things that you're not expecting. We know that there's something probably not right with the dog. We know it's going into this room with this guy. We know that the guy is being represented by a silhouette, which means the storyteller is saying, I'm not going to tell you who it is. But do we have any thoughts or theories about who this guy is if you were to freeze frame the shot it's, let's it's
2: say. pretty clearly Norris I th- I've always thought that it was Norris because of that it looks like Norris's hair his
1: hair right it's the pompadour he's a little he he might be he, I think that's who it is too I believe you're supposed to think it's Clark
2: yeah
0: but there's other evidence yeah but but when you're watching the movie in a the movie theater in 1982 that's, they're not thinking about freeze no, frames right. yet and exactly. stuff. We're not. No, don't I have time. Yeah. I mean,
1: but I'm saying it's playing fair. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because Absolutely. this thing does get into Norris, right? So. I mean,
0: and they, they have
2: plenty of other ways to create the red herring and that they is Clark and later, And they definitely too. do want you to think that it's Clark, but they're mm-hmm. really pushing that idea, and I think he's right that they're doing it from right now, that they're kind of trying to make you think that, you just, that it's Clark. Well, the reason you think it is is because there's, he's the friend of the dogs.
0: Yeah. Like, right? so, oh, where else would yep. this dog
1: be going to Clark? Right. I have a confession to make you guys... I've probably seen this movie, you know, 30 40 times. And I've never consciously wanted to play the game of where's the thing at any given time because I just love the thrill of the movie yeah. and the unexpected and the but so we're but we're going to play that game a little bit, yeah. Yeah. And we're all we're all we all have money on Norris at this point, right? Mm-hmm, for sure. Absolutely. And then what's really interesting is we have the first of a series of fade-outs. And this one closes the sequence. But the fade-out throughout this movie does not always close a sequence. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about the way that Carpenter puts this movie together. There are fades in the middle of sequences. There are fades just at the end of a scene for one reason or another to create this false sense of structure uh, often that that is really disguised. I think
0: often... He uses these transitions as a way to get into the heads of the characters too. We had the previous white fade to white that we had, as McCready is looking into the sky like, "Oh shit, I don't want to fly in this stuff." So we fade to white. That's kind of what he's thinking it's going to be up there. And later we're going to get one with with Blair as well, but we'll talk about it when we get there.
1: So this takes us into the third sequence of the first act, if we want to be all sort of structural here, and we're picking the adventure back up as these guys are headed to try to figure out what's going on with those crazy Swedes. Norwegian. Norwegian. Right. And this is one of those sequences that feels to me like it's a combination adventure movie and suspense thriller with some creepy gross stuff thrown in. Absolutely. So these guys arrive at the camp and what do we notice about the camp?
2: Already something has gone awry. Yeah, it's all fucked up, man. (laughs) There have been explosions. It's burned up. (laughs) It's still smoking and smoldering, so it was obviously recent whatever went down, went down not very long ago. So we can deduce that the Swedes uh,
0: in the helicopter just torched this place before they left. I mean, it's their doing, no doubt, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe did the thing set off. Of well, we don't
2: know there is a thing. Right? Yeah, we we don't, don't even know that we yet. But know. It, they did have oh, those I mean, hand
1: grenades, so I don't know.
0: I'm talking about us as a group here oh, okay. that have seen the movie. But it, you don't really need to know that as you're watching it. You just need to know that something's wrong.
1: There's a pretty sweet transition as they move inside of the building um, and we see the exterior. Then they move in and then there's a cut that comes up that then takes us into what's the soundstage. Probably they're back at Universal. No, we? that's absolutely what it is. And the sets are gorgeous. Like, this is one of those first times that you actually start to see really beautiful fantasy set design. And it takes us back to Star Trek, doesn't it, John?
0: Star- yeah, there's other places where I was going to mention Star Trek, but that'll, that'll the na-
1: This later. is the naked time, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for where sure. everybody's frozen in the... Sadly, McCready's not going to take off his shirt and start sword fighting. And
2: the, okay. the first thing you see on the inside of the, of the place is, it, is a bloody axe stuck in the wall. <laughs> so, that's, you know, that's not a good sign anywhere <laughs> the, the first place you walk they into. They get a lot of mileage out of axes in this movie. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a good horror movie image, a bloody axe. You kind of, it, it kind of reminds us that we're in a horror movie.
2: The photography, I, I guess this is a good time, as any, to bring up Dean Kundi. Um, the photography here, the cinematography here is just so exceptional with the the dark foreground and the white background with the icicles and everything up front is in shadow, but it's backlit with the frozen, you know, even though it, I also like that it shows that even though it's not been that long, stuff is still on fire, that the cold has creeped in and frozen everything on the inside. And then we hopefully don't notice that there's no breath coming out of everybody's mouths. Well, that because was the
0: real challenge. That was yeah. the challenge, yeah. I guess uh, Russell went so far as to actually put little flakes of dry ice in his mouth and stuff like that. To try to,
1: they
2: built little uh, they built little mesh cages and put dry ice in the little yeah. cages and uh, and he said that they tried it with everybody, but Kurt was the best at it. He could really get the he could really get the breath working. And you'll see a couple that's of times your where training th- for you, right yeah, there. that's where, exactly right.
0: <laughs> yeah, you learned that on the computer. war tennis shoes, set, I believe. <laughs> um, you, there's a couple places where you'll see they're cutting into a shot where he opens a door or something. Which I guess he was just holding breath, like, and so it, that he could at least start the scene with a big pushing it out, of, yeah, yeah. So, th- so it just sells it right away, and you don't have to worry about it the rest of the scene.
1: So, this is where we get our first real. Something G- gee whiz, just, look at me, I'm Robertine. I'm going <laughs> to do something really crazy shot, right? Oh, yeah.
0: And it's cra- it, It's completely crazy. So this guy did what to himself? <laughs> Sliced <laughs> his
1: wrist many times and his throat. He's cut his throat so so dramatically that his head is, is almost fallen
2: off. And still also cut his wrists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is what, ambition. In what order? And will to order. power right there. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that was one of the first things that I saw in Fangoria is that frozen blood um coming out of the out of the wrist that just like, wow, that is just insane looking really made me know I wanted to see this movie. <laughs> so at that point you were able to read Fangoria? Uh no, the, I could I could pick it up at the grocery store when my mom what, was out looking at something else. I could, my whole look, childhood yeah. was
0: that magazine rack, Fangoria, <laughs> Cinefacts. Yeah. <laughs> but you couldn't have Starlog. John could, oh, could, absolutely could not, you, you no. Fangoria either. And there was no way... This, this movie pr- would have predated my doing that, probably, but it's a little early for me to be that interested in magazines, but...
1: Well, we'll give these guys credit. They're going to find as much as many artifacts as they can to try to figure out what happened to the crazy Swedes. Cundy manages to find places to put smoke uh, in the background so that even though our breath isn't congealing, there still is a sense that, you know, there's something going on in the air. There's particulate matter floating around. Which, of course, would all be done CG now, but they're actually dropping stuff from the from the top of the set. So okay. then Kurt, oh, when it. Kurt walks in to find the block of ice, that's where he opens the door, right? And, and, and you can pushes see that breath yeah. out. There's, the breath just, there's out more of the than
0: breath. one. Yeah, there's a few of those, I think, in this.
1: You don't need many of them. You, know? no, you just need to establish it. A couple of them just to... sort of sell the idea and then you're moving
2: on. If you're
0: sitting there watching people's breath through a whole scene, then you're not watching movies right.
2: I guess they had a had a really difficult time with just balancing the temperature and then spraying spray bottles of water in the air just to keep the humidity really high in yeah. order to try to keep that happen too.
1: So you get to that shot where following Copper into the room, or his point of view as he moves into the room, and he finds McCready standing over this big block of ice that is something's missing inside of it and that's another one of the direct tips of the hat to the thing because in the thing you know they bring the monster back to the to the outpost in a great big block of ice and somebody puts an electric blanket on it (laughs) it's not the best move but i remember that was a trailer shot of him standing there with the shotgun over this giant block of ice
2: i i think that's a great shot I, i i love the way that that it shows them both looking over it and just puzzling over it, and leaving them in as much curiosity as we are. No, they don't know anything more than we do. We don't know anything more than they do.
1: But it certainly gives it a sense of scale. Whatever came out of is, that block was big. was big. Yeah. And somehow they miss the guy uh who had been burned up when they were going in but as they come back out they make another grizzly discovery which tops everything that they've seen up to that point I think they so parked it might be on the other side, side of the building yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: But man yeah this is quite a discovery that they make <laughs> uh
2: I'm not sure how you respond to this This was another Fangoria uh, oh, man, favorite that's, that's of mine amazing. I think that magazine got a lot of mileage out of f- photographs of this particular corpse is that maybe the right word? well and it's so <laughs> sure. great because that
1: corpse is it's laid there in the foreground and you're not allowed to see it yet and so he's playing the game of teasing us and mm-hmm. wanting to see more and and i love the fact that he says help me get a shovel i mean these guys aren't fooling around they're going to take this damn thing back to the to the base might not be the best idea but they're, that's what they're going to do and again like you pointed out before john we there's a, f- a fade to white right i just find these these fades, whether to black or to white, to be a way to just disorient us and yeah. not quite tell us whether we've reached the beginning or the end of a sequence where we are uh, structurally. And so I, I find it to be, you know, a really, a really interesting way that he's telling the story because um, the sequence is, is not over yet. Even though there's that whiteout, um, we're still kind of on the same story trajectory. And I think we're in the same place emotionally. These guys are coming back. And by the way, who's watching them arrive when they get back to the base,
2: the pooch. The first thing the we dog. see is the
1: dog, and the dog is actually watching these guys.
2: Another thing that I really like um, is that establishing shot that shows the entire um, the entire station. And one of the things that I like about any kind of a uh, fantastic movie or a fantasy movie or anything that has a fantastical element is, is I would say, the more grounded in reality that it is, the better it, the easier it is to buy the fantastical elements of it. And as you look at that station. It looks like some kind of research station. There's mm-hmm. antennas on several different buildings. All of the little different huts are all different kinds of shapes. It looks like it was built for multi-purposes. It looks like people do work there. It it, it looks like a real place that people go to do a job, and it's very, very believable.
1: So it makes it all the more powerful when, when the cut, then, <laughs> is to these guys revealing the, that, <laughs> the thing, <laughs> the creature, the dead, the corpse... Um, And everybody gasping and gagging, and and it's just done in one cut, like from this very realistic thing to this very fantastic thing. Mm -hmm.
0: And apparently whatever they sprayed on this thing to get the So when they unravel the canvas covering over it, to get the vaporous effect, they sprayed something on it that did legitimately smell like just putrid shit and so nobody here is acting brimley is actually gagging all of it um so i thought that was pretty, i don't know if that's what they really intended exactly but boy got it was a pretty good
1: effect i think it's really interesting too that we since we've got everybody standing around the table he takes the time to to show everybody to remind us who's here because they're and, not all going to be here forever
0: and you know i think it's telling how everyone responds i, I think as he goes around you know, the table showing us everyone, everybody's response kind of correlates with what their character's going to be. Not everybody has a real, but Brimley, he is the first one to be the most deeply affected by everything, right? He's the first one to go off the rails, and here he is gagging. And Norris, weirdly, doesn't seem to care that much. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. you're
1: right. There is absolutely no expression on Norris's face.
2: Yeah. And McCready looks like, well, this is bad. I've seen shit go down, and Mm -hmm. this looks like shit's about to go down. And they
1: could have ended that sequence on that shot of (laughs) McCready, you know, Mm -hmm. because we're moving closer to
2: him, but they
1: don't. They end the sequence on a shot of the dog.
2: What a great (laughs) shot of the dog. I know that dogs don't really have facial expressions, but that (laughs) dog looks like he's got a, I'm going to fucking get you guys (laughs) look on his face. It's really (laughs) remarkable.
1: And then this moves us into the fourth sequence of the first act. And so I think a lot of times these days, to make a blanket statement. You usually have three sequences in a first act. Uh So this has a slightly longer first act. And the tone changes again. We're back to Windows, and we've got sort of a little comedy business with Gary turning up the volume on on Windows and Windows complaining about the fact that he can't reach anybody. And it just makes us remember how far away they are from everyone and how vulnerable they are.
0: I will say one thing, and I don't know how intentional it was, but there's a dynamic between Gary and windows right there that I find interesting. Windows does not want to look at Gary as he's talking to him. It's, I've always noticed that like, it's strange. He's like, he's making these uh, like blunt assertions. He's like, I can't get all anybody. And he's being assertive towards him, but he will not look up at him until the end of the scene. And I feel like, you know, and especially the way Gary comes in, just like a total dickhead and just turns the volume up. That's how he wakes him up. There's already kind of static between these two. And later we're going to get a showdown between these two, right? Even as brief as it may be. I think that they're already establishing the dynamic between those two.
1: Do you think they just don't like each other? Is it just
0: Well, I think Gary doesn't like any of these hippie types. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he's oh, yeah. kind of that way towards get all of them. But, but Windows seems to be the most kind of secluded one of these people. So when the shit goes down later, he's the first to bolt, you know? And and it ends up coming down between him and Gary for, for a brief moment. So, I don't know. It just seems to me like that's being established there a little bit. Windows is not comfortable with dealing with Gary, I think. He's way more comfortable dealing with
1: Blair earlier, almost in the exact same scene, right? So from that scene, we move to this uh, dual autopsy that's going on. So we realize that both Blair and Copper are capable of doing autopsies, and Fuchs is in there as well. So Fuchs is identified with the scientists. I don't know exactly what his job is, but they're all kind of in there, right?
0: He's the meteorologist, right, I think? Is that right? I think so. Okay. He ends up being, you know, the scientist that's left or whatever at one point,
1: right? you got some spectacular goo acting from Wilfred Brimley as he's reporting on the state of this thing that they're this body that they're looking at that has normal organs well what we got here is what appears to be anyway a normal set of internal organs
2: heart lungs kidneys liver intestines
0: seem to be normal
1: So it's all gross out stuff, but it's realistic gross out stuff. You know, tell and then they until you it's cut to that face with the teeth stuff. and the eyes Which and everything. Is just else. one of my favorite, the distended effects.
0: mouth. Oh, it's so good.
1: So we're then we're established back to the place at night, and here comes. I know this is Cody Wyoming's favorite scene.
2: This is not just my favorite scene in the movie. This is one of my favorite scenes in almost any movie. And
1: so the two guys are hanging out. Uh, it's it's Blair and Palmer, right? And they're watching TV. Childs. Uh, sorry, Child, Childs, and, and Palmer, and they're watching TV.
2: Yeah, they're watching. Let's make a deal, and uh, and Palmer gets up and he goes. I've seen this one. I know how it ends. And he goes over to the to the top loader VHS and and pops it out and puts something else on. He comes back to his bed, and he lights a giant spliff. And as he's lying on it, you can see that in the next bed over is Childs. And Childs just sort of absent-mindedly, not even absent-mindedly, but just very casually reaches his hand out, and and Palmer finishes lighting it and then hands him the spliff. And it just, it shows a lot of character building, and it shows a lot of how, and it's not just that, but how this whole scene goes, and the other guys in the rec room sort of playing out afterwards, that, you know, these are professionals, this is how they interact with each other when work is done, and they don't say anything, but it just tells you a lot about how the relationships work, The the interpersonal dynamics of all of these guys and how they work out together and it does so much without saying anything
1: Ah! Clark will you put this mutt with
2: the others where he belongs
0: yeah okay okay
1: and the fact that Clark is the one who's told to put the dog away just further reestablishes the fact that he's the dog
2: guy. Mm-hmm.
0: And not to mention, his the way he responds to the request, the way he takes the dog down the hallway to put it in the cage, it's all a little methodical and kind of creepy. I think he's intentionally playing this as
1: if he might be... Might be the thing?
0: Yeah. He's like, sure, yeah, no problem.
1: This sequence is all happening in what feels like real time, which is another reason that I think the movie works so well from the end of that autopsy to the guys watching Let's Make a Deal to the guys in the rec room to him putting the dog away all feels like it's real time. And then the shit starts to go down in the kennel in real time. And Mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that Carpenter is so great at with this movie is giving us these big chunks of uninterrupted action. So you don't feel like you're being whipsawed back and forth by a storyteller like, I'm sorry, but like in Alien 3. Um, You're being dropped into real time and you're watching these events happen and, and, and they're happening right there in front of you and there's... You know, you're not being directed to look anywhere else. You're in the space.
2: Absolutely, and and, and again, when the, with the, this is such another great example of multi dog acting. But Jed, the wolf dog, um, who's our main dog actor, in the thing dog, when he first enters the kennel, he doesn't he, he doesn't pay attention to any of the dogs. He doesn't look at anything. You can tell that something is different about this one, as opposed to all of the other ones. He's he's set himself apart and whether it's the dog trainer who's really good at doing it or the dog is really good at doing it or Carpenter knew how to do it. or But there's just something about the way that that dog walks in, doesn't look at any of his surroundings at all. He stays focused straight ahead and then stays focused straight ahead as he slowly lowers himself down to a kind of a prone position but doesn't check out the other dogs. He's not... He's not one of them, right? And and it and it makes you feel like he is not one of them, and and then it very very quickly after that (laughs) shows you that he is indeed not one of them, right?
1: We stay we stay in the kennel with the dogs, yeah, and we watch this the thing do its thing for the first time for the first time, uh, and we're we're right there for the whole the whole business, and it's it's pretty bold and bloodthirsty. You don't usually do this to dogs in movies. No. Yeah, you don't usually tear
0: open a dog's face and then (laughs) its skull just drop out of its head. (laughs) Like yeah, that doesn't
1: I haven't seen that anywhere else. That's exactly what we want during the summer of E. T. Yeah. Right? I I think so, yeah.
2: I I remember watching this, and I remember how that scene just absolutely affected me, and I was just freaking out. And I, like I said, I wasn't scared, but I was freaking out because I'd never seen anything like this. I, I, I I couldn't imagine how they did it. It was just my my jaw was dropped, my mind was blown. As what in the world is going on? And that dog chewing his way through the chain link fence—that's terrifying. So good.
1: Talk about a horror director. It's like, well, we don't have any people in here, but we don't have to. People aren't the only things that get scared. Yeah. This dog is terrified. He's yeah. so scared he's going to eat through metal. <laughs> yeah.
0: I never really care so much for the squirting the dog part. <laughs> it always makes me like, go, oh, come on. We didn't have to do that, did we? Poor but thing. It, it doesn't dog, look happy at all. She's been trying to eat the squirt
1: stuff coming out of right. her. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it. <laughs> My dog can't see a sprinkler and not run, not run up to it and start trying <laughs> to bite the water. It's the it.
2: filling that they use for Twinkies. Is the stuff that
0: <laughs> no, it was. It's, it's not dog. the filling. It's the whatever keeps Twinkies together. Oh, uh, it's is it the chemical? Are compound. you serious? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then uh, when Clark comes back and the dog comes flying out and does this amazing couple of them doing jump amazing skid, jump skid because they are so afraid. Um, it's all great because again we're in real time he came Mm -hmm. back because he heard all this noise and so this stuff is is happening right in front of our eyes
2: guys are still playing cards they're still watching let's make a deal max going to get a beer and then he hears the noise as well
0: you know clearly mccready is a little on edge like he's been thinking about as we last saw him the shit's about to go down like cody said so much so when he hears just like a disruption of any kind he doesn't even care he just goes and hits the fire alarm he's like i'm not fucking around here at all this is like we're on the precipice of some really bad news if i hear anything go wrong i'm pulling the fire alarm
2: and he does before anybody corrects me he is drinking a budweiser there is what he hits the fire alarm with i was wrong about that he he hits it with a budweiser (laughs) who now
1: would say that as all this intensity is happening you know what we need here we need a joke (laughs) we need a laugh i don't know what
0: the hell's in there but it's weird and pissed off whatever it is and
1: mm-hmm. the audience laughs and it's like it's again it's carpenter knowing exactly how to play the the audience like an accordion you know mac wants the flamethrower mac wants the what that's what he said now move
2: i think that line mac wants the flamethrower is a hilarious line too because <laughs> yeah, he says what
1: Why, what Whoa. do you want the
2: flamethrower but it's
1: also real i mean this is you know this is what's so great about this movie is that It all comes out of character. It all comes out of the organic nature of the situation. You don't have to work to make a joke. You just let these guys react like normal people would to something this crazy.
0: And I just wanted to point out that um, Benning's there telling Childs, Mac wants the flamethrower. This is our first deferment to Mac as the authority figure. Right, yeah, you're right. Because he's clearly not the authority figure here uh, in the normal situation on the the outpost. But as soon as... uh, dog creatures start squirting all over the place. It's like Mac knows what to do. Like, and do Mac, whatever he says. Mac
1: does tell everybody to stay back as well. Yeah, so He's, he he's is, already starting uh, to call the shots. Yeah, yeah. He grabs the gun. He fires. He's
2: Which speaks to that combat experience again. These guys know that he's been in the thick of it and, and know to let him go and do his thing. Except for Clark.
1: Well, you know, and Clark's reacting to the fact that Mac just shot one of the dogs. And mm-hmm. again, you know, that's not your exact summer entertainment movie right. fair, you yeah. know? Like, we're gonna actually shoot dogs with shotguns. I'm sure that the executives at Universal were probably really concerned about this movie. Well, maybe that's why they didn't put the logo at the beginning.
2: I can't imagine they were they were giving Very anybody possible. any
1: love, because yeah. this movie is not fucking around.
2: You've mentioned before on, on your podcast about movies that, that want you to like them, um, not, and, yeah. and this movie does not give a shit at all about that at all. It's here to tell its story, and it's it's not trying to make friends with you,
1: and and yet it's a very friendly movie in a it weird has, way. It has it
2: has friendly people in it and people that you like, but the movie yeah, isn't. You're right. The movie exactly. isn't. Yeah, friendly. I think definitely that we're far from the
0: ending, but the ending lets you know that. <laughs> yeah, good. definitely. I mean, they could have definitely done something different with the ending.
2: I just love how the, and and as the monster here inside the kennel just keeps unfolding and keeps changing. It it just keeps you. Uh, it just keeps pulling the rug rug from, up from under you. Like I said, you know, the movie starts off with you having no footing in it. And then when we get to the kennel scene and you finally see what the monster is, and then in the very next shot, the monster is something different. And then in the middle of the shot, the monster is something different. Yeah. And you just have no idea what's going on because no other movie had ever been like this where the, the monster looks like the monster. And, you know, the werewolf, the man turns into the werewolf, and now he's the werewolf. This is not like that. You know, the dog turns into the thing, and then the thing turns into another thing. And then before your eyes, it turns into another thing. Yeah, it just... goes from spider legs to, at some point, ha- like a flower coming out of it's... out of the inside yeah. of it.
1: But the flower opens up, and it's got teeth in it. And then you get a crazy point-of-view shot of the flower as it sort of is extending itself and attacking <laughs> and attacking childs. The it, the camera sort of flies right through the air, approximating this thing that's, that's shooting towards childs who responds appropriately with a flamethrower
0: yeah yeah he he responds appropriately and kind of coolly considering what he's seeing uh so you get the idea oh this child's guy might also be uh kind of in his element here he might end up being uh who knows he could end up being the hero by the end of the movie i mean people saw alien they could be thinking hmm i wonder who is is McCready, the dallas is child's the ripley
1: who knows and again, Carpenter ends this scene with a camera move that reveals everybody and their reactions to what they've just witnessed after, now that they've torched
2: this thing. And we
1: do end up in this particular case on McCready.
2: How many how many guys are there? Nine guys, 10 guys total. Uh, but he's so good at including everybody in sometimes in every shot. You know, he'll get every single person, what they're all about, who they are, doing something. And they're not just they're not just set dressing, they're characters. And he gets them all in frame, or at least yeah. in the pan. He he includes his entire cast. Yet another Hoxian thing, right? Yeah. Getting everybody mm-hmm. in the frame. A
1: Hoxian thing and Hawk's only had a square to yeah, put him in. Right. And, and you know, we've got the pull the full PanaVision aspect ratio to f- that space with with these guys that are part and of carpenter
2: camp. knew that and he knew that and he knew that he was going to make the most of, of what he had to work with which was quite a lot in this particular case
1: so this sequence ends with the shot of the camp at dawn and that brings us to the end of the first act the the, the thing has now manifested itself and when everybody is set up the situation is set up and and we reach the end of this episode as well all right well. it's been epic.
0: It has, for sure.
1: Cody, if people want to um, find... Tell us about your your bands and where they can hear some of the music that you're making these
2: um, days. I play in a band called The Philistines. Um, we've got some a few shows coming up this summer in May. I don't know if this podcast will be aired by... Um, probably not next week, so um, I think that... Uh, no sense in talking about those, but we'll be at the record bar this a couple of times this summer later in June. Um, we'll be playing around town. I also play in a band called the Pedal Jets, and we will be re- releasing an album either late this summer or early fall. Um, that we've been working on called Twist the Lens. We just uh, got back from New York, uh, mixing the record with John Ann Yellow of Dinosaur Jr. and Sunvolt fame, he's been their producer for a long time, and uh. We made that record with him. We re-recorded it here and mixed it up there in New York. And um, very proud of it. And some of the best work I've ever done. And uh, then I have a new band called the Guillotine Choir. Um, we are going to be releasing some singles this summer, and then we will be uh, we will be playing shows again. We're going to kind of take the we're we're a new band. It's an all electronic band as opposed to. Guitar rock, which is kind of what I've been mostly known for. Um, but this is all synthesizers and drum machines. And we're going to take kind of the summer off and really make sure that we have a stage show put together for when we come back this fall.
1: So do you guys uh, have, Is it, do you go to Bandcamp uh, to find music? We, or do we go to we
2: Facebook have, sites? Or what do we look we, for? We are, on, we are on, all of those bands are on Facebook. All of those bands, uh, well, the Pedal Jets and the Philistines are on Spotify, on Bandcamp, on SoundCloud, um, Apple Music um all of those all of those streaming sites and any any place you go to find music you can generally find our music john anything well,
0: we'll just add what we usually do. You can find us on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. You can come to our Facebook page, the Alien Minute uh, uh, Facebook page, and let us know what you think. I'm sure you're going to have, I, I feel like we're going to have a lot of feedback on these thing things. I think people have been anticipating us talking about this movie. Uh, we also have a Patreon. We have Alien Minute forward slash, uh, or sorry, patreon.com forward slash Alien Minute, where we're doing uh, movie commentaries. We did a commentary of Science of the Lambs. We're doing Quadfect episodes that many of you may know. the finding the four perfect movies in a row from a filmmaker um, just doing those you know here and there on on the Patreon only two dollars per episode I
2: want to I want to say one more thing before I get out of here first off thank you for having me in because the thing is my favorite film of all time this is my favorite movie does that mean you're going to be coming back for the next episode I hope so okay if you'll have me Um, and then uh, but it is it is my favorite movie of all time but I think that the 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 Carpenter is one of the few people who has a a uh, quinfecta. I think he has five great movies in a row, but um, but uh, not many people do. But I think that he does. But uh, so thank you. All right, we'll see you uh, back for the second of our
1: four-part series examining doing an autopsy on John Carpenter's The Thing. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.